Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Anomalies of the holiday calendar have conspired to produce an anomalous show. One new interview and one from last year. It's hard to get guests this time of year, and it's even harder when you're trying to work up to the holiday feeling yourself. The relapse of COVID is hard on all of us. I'm becoming convinced there's no way to avoid the damn thing that I have so far. Anyway, today's topic is Chile. First, we'll hear from Antonia Mardonis Marshall on the recent election there. And then we'll hear from the socialist activist Antonia Atria speaking about last year's constitutional referendum in that country. On December 19th, Chile held a runoff between the two top candidates from the first round of elections a month earlier, with the former student leader Gabriel Bort defeating the right-wing, Pinochet-loving José Antonio Cast by an impressive 56-44 margin. Bort ran as the candidate of a new party, Social Convergence, which was part of a broader left coalition, Apruebo Dignidad, which translates as Approved Dignity. I don't normally feature political candidates or people who work for them, but I'll make an exception in this case because she's knowledgeable and honest. Antonia Mardonis Marshall, who is also a sociologist, handles international relations for Bort's party. Antonia Mardonis Marshall. Were you surprised by the results? Yeah, honestly, we were. I was. I want to say I knew we were going to win, but we were so assured that we were going to be the first majority in the first round of elections. And it was such a big frustration when cast came two points over us that I think we were all like trying to manage expectations. Most surveys were showing the last weeks that there was like a technical tie between the two candidates. So I I thought we were going to win, but that it was going to be pretty tight. I was fearing that a cast would call electoral fraud, that we would have to recount votes. But very happily, we got over 12 points of difference. So so there's no doubt that we won. Yeah, he did concede rather quickly, right? Uh, He didn't play Trump on that one. (laughs) No, he didn't. But because the difference was like very, very obvious from the beginning. And we have something that Chileans are very proud of is their electoral system and how fast we count votes. We always have the same night of elections, the the results. And because this was only like the ballotage and it was two candidates, like one hour after the closure of the um, tables, of the electoral tables, we already knew basically who had won. (laughs) I feel like we're a very backward country here in the U.S. Uh, Yeah, we were counting ballots for weeks afterwards. How do you explain the lingering appeal of Pinochet to a substantial portion of the Chilean population? Uh, What is it about that period? I would think that most people would find it um, embarrassing and painful, but uh, evidently there's still some attachment. What is it? That's a good question. I I want to think that most people that voted for caste are not as attached to that period of history. And it's not because of that that they voted for him, uh, despite his clear support to the regime. I think there are several elements that are going around here. One has to do with this positionality of caste as an outsider of politics, although he's not. He comes from politics. He was a representative of one of the classical right-wing parties for a long time before he broke with them and created like this extreme right party. But he was able to discursively position himself 
kind of like a radical, like Trump did it. So I think there's something about like an anti-system, radicalized anti-system that he was able to appeal to some people on the one side. And then I think that there's a lot of the more, I don't know, centrist or liberal right wing that they say that they don't comply with the dictatorship, that they say that they're like more for gender rights. But when the moment comes and they see their class interests threatened, they were able to like look across this Pinochet thing and like support this guy because they were positioning body just like the worst communist Korea style um, misery bringing to the country. So they were they were able to play with that discourse and people act sometimes through fear. So I think some parts of the population kind of bought into it. I think that in Chile also Venezuela is like a, a, a phantom that is very used in politics. That was that was my next question. Chilezuela, they're saying, right? Yeah, Chilezuela. And, and this was used four years ago for the uh, past elections where the candidate was a center-left guy, much more moderate than, than our party, I would say. And they were already using the Chilezuela. And they were using it also like in 2000 with President Ricardo Lagos. It wasn't Chilezuela, but it was communism. Uh, and I think that fear has grown because of the crisis in Venezuela and because Chile has been receiving a very big amount of immigrants from Venezuela. Yeah. How important was the migrant issue uh, in the election? Very important. I think that that was one of our failures, like in the first round of elections, that we were not able to confront like that discourse of anti-migration and not offer a solution to a real problem that doesn't have to be uh, sold through walls. You know, this guy was like talking about a sanja. It's like the opposite of a wall, like um, I don't a, know, you call a it, big like ditch, a, <laughs> a, big, a big ditch. So he was doing the Trump discourse. We kind of abandoned the, the, the migration issue. And I think in the north of Chile, where a lot of immigrants are arriving, it's a real issue because people are, are their regular lives are changing. The state has abandoned immigrants. They're not. Piñera's government didn't do anything about it. So you have a lot of people that are camping in the streets that are in, in very bad conditions. And local people in the cities kind of like, of course, increasingly resent it. So I think it was important for the second round to talk about migration, to talk about why we want a regular and secure migration, why we don't believe in walls or ditches, but in bridges and how, but how we need to actually like have a, Gabriel Boric talked a lot about like international coordination between the countries of the region to respond to the, to the, to the migration crisis in Venezuela that is not going to stop. It's going to continue happening. What would a more humane approach to the flow of refugees be? Well, I think that there's some, some minimum things that has to be respected in terms of human rights that have to do with family reunification, for example. The Piñera government was very publicly deporting people in the past two, three years without even consideration of like breaking up families, like very similar that was happening in the U.S. I think that also he created a migration law that is very problematic because it actually doesn't leave any option of people that enter to the country as a tourist to change their status to a permanent or to a temporal resident. That was possible before and it's not possible now. And that made that a lot of people that enter through legal frontiers become irregulars and they cannot like access job, they cannot access minimum human conditions of living, right? Something that we should do definitely is um, regularize most people. Like, of course, there's cases, and uh, Gabriel has said it, like, if you have criminal records, 
we, we will ask you to leave to your country, but like most people don't. Most people are just escaping poverty or political conflicts. And in those cases, we need to do something with people that are already here. We need to give them legal papers so they can integrate to society. Also, what the current government didn't do at all in the North when this crisis began, they began to cross through the, um, the desert in the frontier from between Bolivia and Chile. And they were coming to very small towns where they were, of course, collapsing the small towns because it was a lot of people arriving. The United Nations offered Chile the possibility of creating refugee places where they could actually have access to, to, to water, to different things, and the government didn't, want, didn't respond to that offer. So I think we need like to have a first arrival place where people can actually have access to the minimum uh, living conditions such as water, you know, like yes, food. That's pretty essential. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so how's COVID treated Chile? Has it been a serious problem? It's been a serious problem. In this moment, we are doing quite well and most cities are open. It has been, I was living in California until recently, and it has been treated in a very different way, the crisis. Here, there has been like mandatory quarantines where people cannot get out of their houses or travel from one city to another. So it has been affecting people's life in a much deeper way, I think. But also because of that, I think we have had it a little bit more over control. If I, if I have to say one thing about the current government that I think it's the only good thing I, I can say now is um, that they have been very good with vaccination. Like, I think like 80% of Chileans now have the third doses of vaccines. So the vaccination program uh, was very, very successful. Paradoxically, it was done through a system of universalization of health that doesn't exist in Chile. Chile, you have private and public health. But for vaccination, it was like, doesn't matter how much money you have, like for everybody's going to be equal. And that worked. So I think it's kind of a lesson to the neoliberalist right wing that like things can work when you have like a, a system that you universalize it and do it like equal for everybody. So what is your agenda? What do you hope to do with this presidency? That's a very hard question because like a Gabriel Boric program is very ambitious. And it has um, a lot of transformations and what has to do with the health system, with the educational system, with the environmental agenda, with the gender agenda. But unfortunately, uh, in the November elections, also the Congress was elected and uh, we have a very divided Congress. So it's like half right wing, half center left and left. Uh, and in that sense... That sounds familiar to us, yes. yeah. It's worse. It's the worst one we have had since the coming back of the dictatorship, like the most conservative Congress, probably that's going to assume in March. So we know that a lot of the things that we want to do that have to pass through Congress are going to be very difficult. And we're going to have to moderate a lot of our program points so that we can get some advances passed. So in that sense, it's kind of a downer that having this very progressive pro president, a lot of things are not going to be able to be done. And that is a worry because it's going to generate frustration in the people that voted for us. Uh, but in that sense, I think that the most important thing that this government can do and that was in threat with the opposite candidate, Jose Antonio Cast, was supporting getting the constituent assembly, all the support it needs to write the new constitution. So we, we're living a unique process in Chile 
since the, um, the social uprising in 2019 that opened this possibility of a new constitution. We voted for people to write the new constitution. It's 155 people that were democratically elected for that. With gender parity, we have equal women and men writing the constitution and with seats for indigenous people. So it's a very special and unique composition of this constituent assembly. Cass was always opposed this uh, this assembly. He wanted to reject it. He wanted to vote uh, against it. And then he is likely to undermine the process too if he'd won, right? Yeah, he, he could, like, because the resources come, in some way he could, and he could do campaign to say they're not doing anything because there has to be a plebiscite after the constitution is done to say if we accept it or we go back to the Pinochet constitution. And, and I think that if that Boric, like one of the good news that he's a president, that he's going to accompany this process and we're going to be able at least to get a new constitution that changes the rules of the game, the distribution of power in the state in such a way that like for the future, it's going to be much more easy to make changes. What happened with the constitution of Pinochet was that it had a lot of locks that made it very, very difficult to change itself to make reforms to the constitution. And that wouldn't allow us to get out of like basic things. For example, Chile is one of the only countries in the world where water is totally privatized. It's not like a public, it's not like for the, yeah, for the public, it's in private companies. And that's something that is going to change with this constitution for sure, for example. And of course, one of the uh, most notorious uh, achievements, if you want to call it that, of Pinochet was uh, privatizing the public pension system. Is there anything that can be done about that? Or is Congress going to block that? It's all going to depend because, of course, like Congress will not support that, although the center has been moving towards changing the, the private system that was done during Pinochet. And there's even some center right that has said, like, accepted that it's not good because pensions are really of mystery. Uh, I think we're not going to be able to do the reform we expected to do, but we for sure are going to end with IFPS. That is the actual system. I think that is like the goal to do in this government. And I think how much we can pressure the Congress to, to actually vote in favor of that will also depend on social mobilization. How much people continue empowered, continue mobilizing and pressuring a sen the Senate and the representative house to vote through like for more progressive laws that has been happening in the last months or like couple of years in the social, since the social uprising. Yeah, what's happened with that mobilization? Is it still uh, exist in any sense, or has it gotten folded into a political campaign? You know, a lot of people say uh, that electoral campaigns are the death of activism. Um, what, what is the relation of that activism to the campaign, and uh, what is the state of the activism itself? Of course, it's not like it was at the beginning that people were every day protesting in the streets, like it, it passed to another stage. I think that the constituent assembly process canalized a lot, because a lot of the leaders of social movements were actually elected and for being some of the people that are writing the constitution. So, so there was some kind of institutional path to those demands. What we can see from that uprising, like the changes in society have to do with social organization. Like it began like with massive uh, movements going to the streets, but then you began to see 
I don't know how you call it in English, like cabildos, like people getting together to discuss politics and to and to discuss like the new Chile they wanted, uh, assemblies of people that become like very, very common. And that has mutated towards like more and more organizations. So now, for example, in the constitutional assembly process, they opened a stage for social organizations to go to tell the assembly members what are the changes they, they want for the new constitution. And like hundreds and hundreds of organizations Organizations have been going with well-written plans of like why, I don't know, environmental crisis is priority or why immigrant rights should be treated in this way. And so I think um, it's not that it disappeared. It just took like a more organized way. Like at the beginning, it was very disorganized. It was just like the, um, the anger of people and like going out and protesting, you know. I'm speaking with Antonia Mardones Marshall of the Gabriel Boric presidential campaign in Chile. And the people who are activated by that, uh, those moments, are they engaged with the, this electoral process? Are they excited about Borat or are they looking um, elsewhere for um, real change? The electoral participation tells us a little bit about that. Like in Chile, participation is generally very low because vote is voluntary. So we have commonly like a 40, 45 percent of people going to vote on elections. And for, for Gabriel Boric, we have the highest a number of people going to vote in all our democratic history. Like since like Pinochet, this is the, the election that more people went to vote. It was like 55%, I think, of the population. So it was very high. So I think there is some commitment. I'm not going to say that it, it is all in favor of Boric. I think a lot of it was also against fascism. It was also like the other alternative is very dangerous for women's rights, for um, for environmental rights, etc. What uh, this fear of fascism did is a phenomena of uniting the left wing, the left wing in a way that we hadn't been united in, in, in very long. Generally, I, I think this happens in most countries, like the right wing is very keen to joining through interests, class interest, and the left is very keen to separating because of like small ideological differences. <laughs> yes, yes, so we're yes. always like, we're always fragmenting, fragmenting, fragmenting. And now in this moment, I think we're in a moment of coming together because we know that it wasn't only the danger of caste in the elections, but now what comes is going to be to defend this government because the right wing, the rich people, the, the, the owners of the country will be boycotting constantly uh, what we're trying to do. So we're going to need unity to defend the process. Well, what does the left in Chile look like? What is its constituents? I mean, I imagine it goes from the far left to a center left. But could you just say what kinds of forces are arrayed on the left side of the spectrum? After the dictatorship, politics were hegemonized by what was the right wing and the center left, which we have criticized a lot because they also have perpetuated when they were in government a lot of like neoliberal and, and deepen a lot of neoliberal uh, politics. But you have, like, in this center-left, uh, a broad spectrum from the center-center to the socialist. And the, and the socialist party, you have people more neoliberalist and people that are much lesser. So I think there is, like, a, a, a difference. And then you have the communist party that uh, has historically been uh, in electoral politics, but generally didn't pass the 5% of the votes. 
I, I would say that from the student movement in Chile that was very strong in 2011 and that we elected uh, four representatives in Congress, that like a new force began to emerge. That is what we call the Frente Amplio, the broad front. And this is the coalition that now won government. It's a very new coalition that officialized with that name in 2016. So it's only five years old. And where you have a spectrum of basically leftist and social democrats or, so, or democratic socialists, I would say, parties and social movements. And we have done an alliance with the Communist Party and other movements that were close to them to create this uh, block that is called Apruebo Dignidad, uh, Dignity Approve, or something like that you would translate it. And that's the government coalition that actually won the elections. And then the president to be himself, um, what are his politics? What's his background? And... Uh... What about uh, what, what kind of personality does he have? Does he going to have a, a commanding personality uh, in, in what looks like a challenging um, array of forces? Gabriel Boric, one of the reasons that people voted for him and that people trusted him, even people that are more afraid of leftist politics, has to do with his personality, that he is a person very open to dialogue. He has dialogue with all the forces he, during his whole campaign. He, he always said that we know where we're going to, what is our horizon, but we, we need to go slowly because we cannot like disrupt the politics, the economics in the country. I'm, I'm, I'm available to talk with all the forces and to recognize when I'm wrong. I would say that within the left, he, he has a more moderate personality, like more reflexive. Um, his background, he comes from the student movement. He was president of the... Chilean University Federation in 2011 or 2012 and leaded like the student movement in that moment. So he was really known because of that 10 years ago. I think it's exactly 10 years ago, December 2011, he was elected like president of the student federation. And now 10 years after he's elected president of the country. So that's quite <laughs> admirable. And he's what, 35? Yeah. He's 35. He's going to be 36 when he assumes his presidency. And then in, in 2013, he was elected to, uh, in Congress in a very um, admirable way because we had at the time what we call a binominal system, that it's pretty similar to what you have in the U.S., where it's very difficult that someone from... We, have two, we had two coalitions, the center-left coalition that was called La, Nueva, La Concertación and the right-wing coalition. And it's kind of like the Republican and the Democratic Party. And it was very dif difficult for somebody outside of those parties or coalitions to be elected uh, in Congress. Like the system made it very difficult because you had to had like much more votes than your opponent to actually be elected. He was able in 2013 to break this phenomenal system and to be elected a representative as an independent, as a social movement leader in, in the south of Chile, in, in Magallanes, the region where he's originally from. And then he was re-elected as one of the highest voted candidates for Congress in 2017. So he has been eight years now in Congress. So young, but not really inexperienced. He's got... Exactly, exactly. No, he has a lot of political experience for his age, I would say. But also he, he has been able to open to to get, like, for example, advice from people that are not necessarily from our coalition, also from the center-left. He has been, like, bringing economies, bringing... He's trying to talk to everybody so he can get, like, the expertise of different sectors of society so he can have a stable government. We are, we are all worried how we're going to be attacked and we need, like, to assure stability, especially in a year that is coming in Chile that is... Economists are already saying that it's going to be a year of, res of economic recession. 
because of COVID, because of loss of employment. So it's going to be hard. It was going to be hard for anybody to govern that year. Well, it seems like he has to walk a narrow line um, to actually accomplish something and satisfy his supporters without freaking everyone out and causing capital flight and all kinds of you know, formal and informal protests. So um, what are your thoughts on how that, uh, that, can, that tricky path can be managed? It's a hard one. I think um, from me as a party member that I'm part of his party, we have been talking a lot about like what it means to, to govern because in Chile we have a very presidentialist regime where the president has to uh, name many, 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 like thousands of the positions. And we're a new and small party. And how to deal with covering the needs of all these institutions, this like official government institutions, without abandoning all our social base, right? I think it's going to be very important for this government to be able to have a social base that is in the streets, that is in, in the territories, and, and that feel that they are continually heard and that they can understand why things are not happening as fast as they expected, right? Because people are, are thinking, oh, tomorrow we're going to have free health for everybody. And, and of course, things are not going to happen like that, right? Like, so I think that is a very, very important part. And the other is what I was saying before, like he will have to be able to talk to all the political spectrum and be able to lead and to convince of certain changes are needed in this country. If we don't want to have like a social crisis again, where people are just protesting without stop because like there there are demands that need to be satisfied and we have to respond to them and people that are more moderate will have to understand that i think <laughs> what could the president do a president even if doesn't have congress in his side does have some power so what things can be done in the early months to uh try to satisfy some of the demands of the constituents yeah that's a really hard question it's not only about what he can do. I think we have to give a lot of protagonism to local governments. I think that local governments and our coalition has been able to win a lot of spaces in local governments. And, and now we have governors for the first time before we had like nominated people in the regions of the country. And now we have elected governors that have more power and that will be able to have like uh, more resources to create policies like uh, in, lo in local governance. About what measures he can do, like I understand your question, like there are things that he promised, like for example, almost duplicating the minimum salary that we know uh, needs to pass through Congress. So we'll have to do it slowly. We'll have to do it in the margin of four years. So we'll, we're, we're aiming to end the four years with a minimum monthly salary of $600. But for the US sounds like nothing but here would actually duplicate what people like earn. I think that there's some things that you can do by decree. For example, the migration law that was done that we were talking before. That, that can be done. Some measures about deportation, regularization of people, those can be called out uh, through decree. So he could do a call to regularize all irregular immigrants so they can actually like integrate and like have jobs and find housing, etc. Those are small things that I think we can advance immediately. There are some things that are like signals that I think are going to be important. For example, uh, he has promised that his cabinet is going to have gender parity. So I think that will make a difference, like to begin to have all the levels of state power with presence of women. I think that, that that will make a difference because I think women do politics in a different way and manage like institutions in a different way. There are some things that I think have, have to go through Congress, but I'm not sure. For example, one of his proposals is uh, eliminating student debt. Most people that go to the university 
have to go through a system of of indebtment that is very deep. And you're like in debt your whole life, basically paying for your university. And he has promised to, to eliminate that debt. I think the most difficult things that he has promised that, that are going to be very hard to do is tax reform, for example. Like he, wanna do, he wants to do a very deep tax reform. And I think there, there's going to be a lot of resistance. So that's going to be a, a difficult point. Yeah, no, I, I did read that he wanted to uh, raise taxes, which is never a very popular thing to do. And uh, what's the reason for that? Chile has a large budget deficit. That's the, one of the normal reasons to raise taxes. But on whom were these taxes be meant to fall? Tax reform is aimed to the super rich. And they hate paying taxes. <laughs> that, that actually, yeah, that, that pay very little tax. So it's like for companies and it's for like the 1% or less of the super rich in the country. So it's a tax reform. It's not going to affect your taxes when you buy things. It's going to affect like actually people that are earning very much. And, and Chile is one of the, um, the world's most, most unequal countries. Our indexes to outside look very good. But it's because we have a very small portion of the population that is actually very filthy rich, you know, and um, yeah, that raises the averages, right? Yeah, and we live with a and 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 our minimum salary is three hundred dollars a month, so it's like very very low for the cost of life here. The tax reform is deep; it's profound uh, because we want to raise like eight percent of the um, of the state record. Um, um, how do you say? recaudation of money so we can do the transformations that we're aiming to that has to do with the health system that has to do with the educational system and all of that costs money finally what is the um, status of the memory of Allende in Chile now Um, do people remember him think of him as a a hero are they worried that uh, Bert might meet the same fate how does he figure in the Chilean imagination I think it's a quite divisive point most of the left and the center left has a very positive image of Allende. Um, We honor him, what he tried to do. And he is very hated and feared from the right wing and the people that, of course, legitimizes the um, military coup because they say that he had the country in a crisis, which which is true. There was a crisis in the country who produced it. It's like the, the diagnosis of why that crisis came to what it is. Yeah, Henry Kissinger, I guess. I think that we have learned from Allende a lot. We don't want to do the things in the same way. There is no people in the left in Chile now that are thinking of expropriating all the companies and all the big lands and as the Allende government was doing in those times. We understand the context in which we're living and our program is, uh, although many of us have a socialist heart, our program is very social democrat and we're aiming much more towards like a European style society that where capitalism is there, but the state has much more of a presence and, and distribution of resources is much more fair. That was Antonio Mardonis Marshall of Social Convergence, the party of Chile's president-elect, Gabriel Boric. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
was some of I Want to Be a Dog from Colleen Green's newish album, Cool. And now a reprise of an interview first broadcast in October 2020. On October 25th, 78% of Chileans voted to scrap the old Pinochet-era constitution and write a new one from scratch. Given the antiquity of our constitution, the idea makes me jealous. And a similar amount voted to have a constitutional convention, not the existing legislature, write the new document. Here's Antonia Atria, a socialist and student activist in Chile, to explain. Apologies for the glitches in the audio. Zoom is a very imperfect medium. Antonia Atria. Were you surprised by the results of this referendum? Was the, were the, uh, was the vote turnout kind of what you expected, or was it uh, more uh, in favor of rewriting than you thought? I'm sort of an exception. My uh, the results were actually what I hoped. I bet on bet on them and won. <laughs> but most people here actually were really surprised, uh, and they thought it was going to be a tighter race. They usually talked about higher than sixty five percent, between sixty five and seventy percent, but no one would be near eighty percent. That was a big surprise for most people. I did vote 78%, so I won my bets. But <laughs> for most people, it was uh, shocking. Participation was also sort of shocking in a weird way because we did expect more participation. I mean, we did think it would be higher than 60%, but it still was the biggest uh, t- voting turnout since the return of democracy. And I think we didn't consider the, the weight that we still have on voters and how people are still scared to go outside and many did not go because of that same issue. However, it was still the biggest voting uh, turnout we've had. More than half of the country went out to vote and that's pretty impressive considering the crisis in representation that um, our current president was elected with 40%. So it was a big turnout, I guess. The protests started about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. Yeah. And now we have this referendum actually moved rather quickly, given the normal um, pace of politics. What's what's happened over the last year to uh, result in this? We certainly got coverage a year ago when people were burning metro stations. But um, (laughs) what's happened over the last year that uh, we probably paid much less attention to for the Northern Hemisphere? What kind of political um, organization, agitation, education has been going on? Firstly, I think the pandemic was a big campaign sort of for the referendum because the pandemic showed and made it more visible how the neoliberal system does not cover basic rights and needs. So people lost their job. And the only answer this neoliberal government gave people was use your unemployment insurance. Even if you're not unemployed, we'll, we will allow you freeze your contracts if you're not going to work. And so you will not have your wages. And if you don't have that, well, use your uh, unemployment insurance, which does not cover informal workers or domestic workers in the sense of um, housekeepers and stuff. Health, it was still a big issue. People got in big, big depths for treatments. And well, now with the pandemic, a lot of people needed treatments and they couldn't afford them. So uh, education, people, for example, with higher education, they don't have the means to pay their going to college. And there was no answer to that. And so it, it, it became very, very clear we're in a big problem, not only what has been carried for more than 30 years, but also right now, there are a lot of issues that the current constitution would not allow to solve. 
And the other thing that happened was that, well, we do have a social security system that's private. It's called IFPs. Basically, you give a certain percentage of your of your income every month. And then you have your own individual fund. And that individual fund is what you will live off when you're old. So each person looks after themselves. There's no solidarity. There's a small uh, solidarity pillar. Obviously, it's not enough. What we had was this thing of taking out the 10% of your savings in your IFPs. And that was huge. Every time we had tried to do anything to IFPs, touch a single hair on their heads, right-wing politicians just shut it down because IFPs are the root of our capitalistic system. They sustain a lot of the ways we can see social security, a lot of ways that social security is understood and the state's role in welfare is understood. And so being able to pass a law that allowed people to take out 10% of their savings was a big issue because it told them, this is your money, not the FFS money to do whatever they want with it. And this is not a social security system. This is just a savings account. Take out your money because right now we need it because we're in a crisis. And then when we change the constitution, we can make a system that actually considers solidarity as its main point, as a system that is actually social security and not individual security, so to speak. That also made it evident that IFPS will would not be touched this uh, with this constitution unless you have like a big crisis and a big pandemic and everything. And so that also showed people that, that they're uniting, they're organizing, contributes to materialize change. So seeing that win, that economical win, because people could go to the supermarket again. They could buy food. They, they, they could pay off bills. 40% of debts for medical treatment were paid because people take out that money. So having that victory kind of showed them that what we can accomplish uh, with, the, the, with the referendum is real and, and it has real impact in your life. Talk some about that constitution. It was a neoliberal ideal, yeah. right? Like Friedrich Hayek could have written it. It was... Um... Talk about the Constitution. What, what kind of um, things did it limit, make it possible? Well, for example, a, a very clear example is with the right to the access of health. You don't have in any part of the Constitution written that we have access to health, that the state... Neither do we, that. for that matter. Oh, you don't? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, we have, the only reference we have is that we have the freedom to choose into a public or a private health care system. That's what our Constitution guarantees. And that is a very good example of the logic which with, with which the Constitution was written. So basically what it does is it gives the role uh, the state of a subsidiary state, but in, not, but in terms of the state will cover only what the market cannot cover. So if you are not competitive enough, if you don't, if you can't pay the most expensive schools or you can't pay any school because you're actually poor, well, you will have a public, sorry for, but a shit public education, free, but frankly, not even to the heels of the, of the private education and the expensive education. And so basically what it allows is it makes our right something for which people can make businesses from, which people ha- can enrich from. And it gives the state's role only to make sure that you have the bare, the access to the bare minimum. 
what does this process going to look like over the coming months? I mean, the the, uh, the voters chose to have uh, an elected assembly write the constitution, right? Not the current Congress. Yeah, we had the constitutional assembly. We call it convention. I think it's very American to speak on those terms. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we have a hundred percent elected constituent assembly and. Well, what comes now is we have the discussion about the discussion about how that uh, and what we imagine that convention that convention having as their rule book, so to speak. Um, so we do have a two third quorum for decision making. So you need to have two thirds of the of the assembly to pass anything you want on the constitution. So we need to add more things to that. Like, does it have any link to territorial organizations? Will there be any system of making it more representative or more participative, the work of the convention? So all those discussions are coming now. Another big discussion that we have to face from today onwards is the discussion about political alliances. Are we gonna go, as the left always goes, separated in 15 different lists, making it virtually impossible for us to get the two thirds we need for any agreement? Or are we gonna go in one single list together in a unity list or things in between like two lists of candidates and stuff? Those are the two big discussions that we have coming up. And then when the discussion starts, I hope, the demonstrations and protests will still have to sort of channel that process towards what we really want. I'm speaking with Antonia Atria, a socialist and student activist in Chile. Now, of course, uh, Pinochet destroyed the left. What does the political configuration look like now? Are there organizations on the left? Um, And what about consciousness too? You you mentioned like everything about the constitution was designed to destroy any notion of solidarity. Has solidarity managed to uh, survive and recover from that? Or what's the state of consciousness and organization right now? First about the the political spectrum look like. We have a very united right wing. The only time I've seen them have a fragmentation was right now when they, not all of them for the reject option on the, do you want a new constitution? Some of the right wings did a campaign for the, yes, we want a new constitution option. But besides that, they they have a history of being very united and very, and work like a block. So it's very hard to breed tensions between them. And at the left, we have, well, we have, center left which are really well I, I guess it's very similar to your situation we have center left parties that are basically right-wing parties they have maintained this this neoliberal system have never made actual uh, attempts to change it and I think that is because the democratic way that we got out of the dictatorship sort of made the distinction between right and left based on whether you are a democrat or you are pro Pinochet. And so everyone that was for democracy was to this left, but that left us with a lot of people that support this neoliberal system. However, they just didn't like the way the, well, they didn't like the dictatorship, which is a very minimum thing to do. So we have that tension within the left because we have this sort of right wing left. And then we have um, this new force called the White Front, which I'm a part of, which is a series of, of smaller parties 
one of us is a big party, which is Revolución Democrática, Democratic Revolution. And this is like the new force. I, I look at US politics, I feel like DSA or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are very similar to what we're trying to do. Like we face this this establishment which has a left wing and a right wing that are which are left wing is a bit really like the right wing like a soft right wing and so this new force sorts sort of tries to come in and speak about real left like socialism and democratic socialism so the three big political forces with a question about organization consciousness and solidarity i would say that after october 18th when the social social as we as we've called it things have been different you see people more willing to collaborate with you and you see people taking care of each each other and you see also how community has been able to face problems that does not solve so for example during this pandemic too we had a big problem with domestic violence so we were quarantined and many women were living with husbands that were their aggressors. And the state, the ministry of uh, the women's ministry did nothing, nothing, amazingly. And the only answer was territorial organization. Neighbors lent a hand to women that needed it. Neighbors that sort of organized to help them. Or with the crisis of food, we had a very big unemployment rate and the answer was local how do you call it um common pots i guess would be the translation which is a big pot where uh women from neighborhoods cook for the entire neighborhood and so they eat together and they went through that rough rough time of not being able to afford food by all together pitching in and making this communal places where you ate so there has been a change and you can see people working together to face their problems and organizing and with a very, very clear political end and what they want. The legacy of the dictatorship is starting to, to leave and, and disappear, I hope. <laughs> people up here sometimes are just uh, describing the uh, outcome of the referendum as a victory for the left. Is it that, or is it just that kind of centrist democracy that you're talking about uh, with the mainstream parties? I think it was a victory for the left, because I think the system that the right wing has proposed, the neoliberal system, is done for. People do not want it. They understand that it, it, it's not thought to benefit all of us. It's just thought to benefit um, the small 1% that has the big money in their pocket. So... What we now have is this dignity that the left, or the real left, so to speak, has been trying to push for decades now. So yeah, I don't think people do recognize, um, I, am, I, I am from the left and that's why I'm voting a um, I do want a new constitution, but there is, but it is a victory of the ideas that the left has pushed. And the reason why people don't recognize themselves as left or right is because right now we're in a political crisis where people do not feel represented by political parties. They refer their critics to politicians as the whole. And that is because politicians have not done anything to change this institution, the institutions we have. They have had massive mobilizations for years and never, not once, had that translated into a big change. 
the protests from 2011 with the educational system did not result in anything more than a need-based gratuity system that left universities in deep debt that was not thought for um, everyone and it's based on excellency which is basically a very neoliberal way of, of guaranteeing free higher education um, so that makes them see the distinction between left and right as a distinction of politicians and since we don't like politicians we do not fit into those categories and that's why they don't recognize themselves as left and some people may say it's not a left victory but I think it's it's the ideas the real left has been speaking about for years and decades and it's and it's a way of demanding things of organizing of, of protesting that is just what the left has been trying to do for decades too so of course it's a victory for the left even though people don't 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 give it that label and coming at the same time more or less as the bolivian election some people are saying maybe the pink tide isn't dead after all um, what do you think about that it is a process of reparation in in latin america we're starting a process of of, of reparation with the triumph of alberto fernandez in argentina the triumph of mass in Bolivia. What we have is people saying, we have gone through a wave of right-wing politicians. They were supposed to have this, um, this coup, basically. They did a coup from the right-wing, um, saying that people did not want what Evo Morales was doing anymore. And, I'm, and I think what the Bolivians showed is that they do trust this process, that they do trust what Evo Morales started and what others will now continue doing, and that they are not disenchanted with that way of thinking, politics and the political agenda. They are not against what the wing party has done, which is very good because every time we try to push any left thing, any left proposals here, the typical argument, the annoying argument, is that we are basically going to turn into Venezuela and that we're basically trying to make a dictatorship like the one Maduro has, whatever. And so I think these other processes like Bolivia show us that it doesn't turn out that way, that way, that we can make changes and still have the support of the people, which is the really important thing. And that people trust this sort of processes. And that's why Bolivia, I think it's is a very good example and something that we can stand from from the for the proposals we will we'll do from now on. All right. Well, thank you and good luck. We we have never been more proud of being from Chile than right now. And seeing this is this historical moment has been heartwarming for many of us. That was Antonia Atria, a socialist and student activist in Chile. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with some seasonal music. Call me a sentimentalist, but I love the holidays, and I'm even curiously moved by some of the season's religious content. Here's the opening of Bach's Christmas Oratorio, performed by the Munich Bach Orchestra and Choir, conducted by Carl Richter. Till next week, bye. <laughs>